we're going to continue our study called This Is Us, our kind of ecclesiology study, our study of the church. And uh, the first week we talked about who the church is. Last week we talked about the purpose of the church and what we are meant to accomplish as we walk in this world. And so this morning um, we're going to kind of step into another uh, kind of topic, a very important aspect of the church and uh, really... Um, for us as Christians, the, the very foundation, the very pivot point at which uh, our whole life is based off of and the motivation at which we move uh, forward with everything that we do, and that is salvation. You know, and I tried to think of some clever like title, subtitle for this morning, and I couldn't really think of anything. And so instead of complicating it, uh, this morning it's just called Saved. You know, for us, I hope that as we lean into it, we can really discover. And, you know, there's a hundred different ways that I could have preached this topic to really come to the same conclusion. And this morning, uh, what I'm going to be sharing with you is, is from what God was speaking to me through the particular text that God brought me to. Um, and, and I hope that as we read it, we can really grab a hold of what God wants to communicate to us about the act of saving that he's done for us, as we've sung about over and over and over again through every song that we've sung this morning, is that his saving grace, his mercy, and the hope that comes with that, that I hope as we read into the text this morning that we can gather that and we can see that because, you know, we, we function in a climate where as the Christian church, maybe we've made this unclear. Maybe it's become cloudy or muddy and it's hard to really fix our, our focus on that power and the purpose of what salvation is all about, what it means to be saved. I've heard the question from even people in church before. Well, what, what does it mean to like, what am, I, what am I being saved from? What does it mean to be saved? How do you really be saved? And this is coming from the Christian circles. And so for us, what does it mean? You know, this is the very work that describes a change in our destination. This is a difference from eternal separation to eternal establishment with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is distinctives in that and that that is the pivot point at which that that destination changes is the word salvation and that saving work that Jesus Christ came and did for us. And so uh, for us this morning, if I could just simplify it into a phrase and I hope as we go through the text, we elaborate it. But salvation is the work of rescuing that God has done through Jesus Christ. That salvation is that work of rescuing that God has done through Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so for us as people, this is we have to understand and know this is that we either have it and that we should start living in it and experiencing it or we need it. There's only two places that we could be with that. We either have it and we need to be living in it or we just need it. We need that saving work. We need that salvation work done on our, as, as Romans would say, the power of salvation, the power of the gospel uh, to salvation to those who would believe. And so, you know, the obvious first step we take is, is what are we being saved from? I think this is very important that we understand this. You know, and a lot of times you'll hear people say you have to understand the bad news before we can really uh, experience and enjoy the good news of what God has done. And so the bad news, you know, the, the, the Bible, the Old Testament specifically speaks of 613 laws that, that God laid out before us. And so you ask yourself, well, why would God lay out these laws or these rules or these expectations? And so what God was showing us, first off, God was creating for himself a people that were different than other people. You know, we talk about this all the time, like a sanctified people, a set apart people, that these people were different than the pagan people, the unbelieving people, and that they were they had a standard of life that they were walking towards, that they were molded by, that they were approaching. 
Now there were, like we said, a total of 613 laws that were laid before them. And it was to reflect, in a lot of ways, the righteousness of God or the holiness of God. That if we look at all these, these uh, laws, all these regulations that God set before the people, what He was doing is He was showing them what, a, what holiness looks like. And so as they approach it, and I know even for us, as we approach even like the Ten Commandments, as we read that, that's 10 of the 613 as we read one of those 10. We could probably find one to two of those where we fall drastically short. And honestly, if we fall short in the first one, which is there you have no other gods before me, we've really fallen short in every one after that. Which is the reality of what the Bible tells us is if we've fallen short in one, we've fallen short in all. And, and just falling short in one of those laws, the punishment was heavy. Even we saw from the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 3 when, this, when sin came into the world, whenever uh, God came into the garden and He approached, He said, where are you? And He said, why are you hiding? And He said, you know, and, and, and God was interacting with them in that point before God sent them out of the garden. After sin had come into the world, what was the first thing He did? Is He slaughtered an animal to give them clothing. And so from the very beginning, death came into the world as soon as sin came into the world. And so sin comes with a penalty because God is a just God and so sin is punished justly. And so as God laid out what holiness looks like, external holiness, living in external righteousness, me as a human, them as humans trying to live out this holiness because God has called them to holiness, called them to be different. And so their, their, their life goal is to function according to these standards. And then the reality we understand and they understood that external righteousness could not be achieved on our own. That's why every year they had to make sacrifices. That's why constantly a part of their religious ordinances, they were having to make sacrifices on behalf of their sin for the forgiveness of their sin according to these regulations. They constantly had to do that. And if we're honest with ourselves, we fall short in those very same ways. Ecclesiastes 7.20, it says, Solomon writes, it says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does, not, who does good and never sins. It says, There is not a person that never sins. That we all sin. 1 John 1.8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Psalm 10, verses 3 through 6 and verse 13, really sum up a lot of what the, the sinful man does. And I believe we can find something of ourselves in these verses right here as we read this in Psalm 10. It says, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His way prospers at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? And so he tells him, he says that, that the, the wicked are greedy. They're for their own gain, that they don't seek his face, that they think in their hearts that I shall not be moved. I'm strong enough to do. I'm strong enough to function. I'm strong enough to live. And then he says that, 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 that they say that I will not meet adversity. And then he says, he says that you will not call to account that the wicked, that the sinful think, they think that I, I won't fall short. That they, that they said, God will not hold me accountable. To my sin. And so deep down with us, we can find ourselves somewhere in this where we find ourselves falling short. We find ourselves doing more wrong than right. 
And so what is he truly saving us from? What is, what, is, what is God doing for us? The reality is God is saving us from slavery. Okay, God is saving us from slavery because when sin entered the world, we were disconnected. And these two things that are really going to be the focus this morning, this is kind of how God was speaking to me in this text, and I hope that we can really kind of see it and communicate it, but that, that whenever sin entered the world, we became a slavery to the search. We became a slavery to the search. And the thing we were searching for, the thing that we lost in the garden, is we lost security and we lost significance. And that our sin constantly in this world is us searching for those two things. Us searching for security and us searching for significance. And that New Testament saving, as we look into the New Testament, we see what God has done for the new covenant, what he's established with us through Jesus Christ, is that it's all about reinstating that spiritual security and significance that we lost and to stop being a slavery to this, stop being in slavery to searching. And so we're going to see uh, in, in Romans 10, as Paul lays this out, you know, Paul writes this beautiful letter to the church at Rome, a really amazing book of the Bible that is tough to tackle when you step into it. But if you would, man, if you, I've only read through it once and, and I want to really read through it all the way through and again, uh, but there's so much truth and there's so much beauty. It's one of the most extensive looks at the gospel and really the whole message being summed up in one phrase that we'll talk about at the end. But Romans chapter 10 is just such a beautiful example of what God wants to communicate to us about the gospel and about the work of saving faith in our life. And so we're going to pick up in verse 1 and we're going to read down to verse 17. And then we'll talk through it together. Verse 1, let's read. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, and that person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what, it does, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. But because if you confess with your mouth that, the, that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no discrimination between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who have they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17 it says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so the first thing that I want us to see this morning is the source of our security. The source of our security. 
And I love how Paul, he, he just brings so much emphasis to this action of salvation. He says, as he's thinking about the Romans, Paul loved Rome and he wanted, always wanted to get to Rome. And as he's writing this letter, he's not quite made it yet. But he says to the church here at Rome, he says, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And he's talking about the Jews there in Rome that are living, as we'll see, they're living, they're seeking their security, their salvation in something other than God. And so he says, he brings emphasis to the idea of salvation and being saved here. And he says that my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them to be saved. And so then he begins to lay out what it looks like to be saved. And he says that he first tells us what it isn't, that they're finding their security in something that will not give them the security of salvation that they need. He says that they have a zeal or this word zeal being passion. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He says they have a passion for God. They love God, but it's not according to knowledge. And a lot of times when you see the word know or knowledge in the Bible, it's not just talking about this head knowledge or this understanding about who God is because they had a passion for God. They loved God. They liked the idea of God, but it was not according to a knowledge. And this knowledge was this intimate love for God, this intimate understanding, this relational love for God. And what they did have is they were walking according to religion. They were walking according to religious ordinances and they were fulfilling these tasks. It's seeking security in that. But what Paul is telling them here, he says, you will not find security or salvation in just an empty passion for God. You know, because I can be passionate about the idea of a lot of things, right? Like we can be passionate about so many different things, whether it's God, we can be passionate about God but be completely disconnected from the effects of God. We can be passionate about our favorite sports team, right? We can be passionate about the Golden State Warriors, and then they lose, right? I mean, disappointment. But ultimately, we'll be disappointed for a couple of days, and then we'll move on from it. But it would be different, right, if we were a part of the team. If you were on the team, it's a different level of interaction. It's a different level because to be on the team is to be known by the team and to be experiencing it with the team. And so what he's telling us here, he said, there's a difference between just externally being passionate about something or knowing something, intimately being interwoven into what it is. And so what he's telling us here is that those people, these people, they have a passion for God, but they're still missing something. They're still missing something. And so for us, we have to understand, and what he'll continue on here, is that this passion, your own passion is not enough. Because in a lot of ways, church, in reality, our passion is fleeting, right? Our passion is fleeting depending on our mood, depending on how we feel, depending on our circumstances or situation. And he continues on here and, he, and, and continuing to go at the idea of what they're doing for themselves. He says, so they're being ignorant of the righteousness of God in verse, uh, verse 3. And he says, but they're seeking to establish their own. And so he says that they're finding security or seeking security or salvation in their own works their own abilities, their own talents, their own uh, commitments. He said they're trying, they're seeking after God. They're being ignorant of what God's done for them, but they're seeking their own righteousness. They're seeking their own righteousness, attempting to do their own thing. And what they were doing in this is they're looking back to those 16, six, 613 laws and they're relying on those for righteousness. Because that's the only way to be externally righteous is to follow the law from top to bottom. 
And so for them, he's saying they have a passion for God. They see the law before them. But they're being ignorant of the righteousness of God because they're seeking their own. So they're following the law. They're trying to abide by the do's and don'ts. They're trying to abide by the rules for their saving, for their security, for everything that they have to do. And so Galatians 3.10 tells us this. It's for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And so for what they were doing is that they were leaning on, depending on the righteousness of themselves, their external works, what they were doing to try to bring themselves closer to God, but would always fall before them and what always will fall before us in trying to live in a world where we are trying to earn our place at God's table is there will be this constant shroud of sin that will constantly fall before us because we fall short. Because our motivations are selfish a lot of times. Because we're, we're ate up with pride. We're ate up with guilt. We're ate up with shame. We're ate up with sin constantly. And so every time we try to approach God in our own strength, what will constantly fall before us is this wall of sin that we can never get through. And that's where they are. And that's why his heart's desire, his prayer to God is for them to be able to see God in his righteousness and not to be constantly approaching God in their own righteousness not trying to establish their own. They're trying to seek security in their own religious activity. They're finding, trying to find salvation in their own work. And he's telling them that salvation is not based off of what you do to earn it. And I love it because he says in verse 4, he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. That righteousness by the law is ended the moment Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for me and you. That we no longer look to the law to be externally righteous, but that we can be internally transformed by the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ paying that penalty for us. That our security is found in His saving work on the cross. That he's offering an alternative to a life of earning, striving, and working. And, he, and we can continue to try to live in that life. We can continue to try to walk in a way where we're trying to live up to the holiness of God. Because, because God is just, because God is holy, he cannot be in the place of sin. You know, that's why, you know, in the Old Testament, we'd talk about like the holy of holies in this place, that you had to be clean of sin before you could come. And anyone who came into the presence of God in the holy of holies, they would die. They would drop dead. You know, not that this is totally biblically accurate, but you think of uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember the, the Ark of the Covenant was open and the presence of God came out. And what did it do? It melted his face. I don't know if anybody's faces got melted in, in, in uh, biblical times, but that's uh, per the gospel of Indiana Jones. That's what the presence of God did to people. It melted their faces off. But for us, you just understand the presence of God is so holy that no sin can be before him because the justice of God has to punish sin. And so, but what did God do? Because he loves us and he wanted to create that opportunity for us, that alternative for us to not have to look to the law to live externally righteous, but to see Jesus Christ hanging on the cross on our behalf and to live and to function by faith. Because he says in verse 5, he says, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. 
Now, this doesn't mean that as a believer in Jesus Christ that we're not pursuing holiness because he calls us to that. Not that we're pursuing the righteousness uh, to, to live righteous lives because he's called us to that too. But what he is speaking to is our place before God is not based on my righteousness. My place before God is not based on the work that I do. But because of my place with God, that is why I do what I do. That it informs everything that I do. That it motivates everything that I do. Because in reality, we are DIY people, right? We want to do it ourselves. And so what Paul is telling them, he says, you cannot do it yourself. Because in your attempts to do it by yourself, you are living under the curse of that penalty. And what he wants to alleviate them from is that slavery of searching for that security of salvation in those works, in the law. And he says, no. You will not find it there. He's trying to set them free from the bondage of that. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, it is not your hold on Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even your faith in Christ, though it be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and his merit. His work has saved us. Our faith is the instrument at which we embrace that salvation and that saving work. But it is His work, His merit, His blood shed that saves us. Salvation is received, church. It's not achieved. We are receiving that work from Him. It is not what we have done. And that is by faith. And that that faith is that, that trusting in that work. That is, that's simply what faith is. It is trusting in Christ's work of righteousness and not mine. That's what faith is. It's shifting my eyes off of me, the DIY, do it myself, and seeing Christ's work is enough. That is faith. That is saving faith when we can simply trust, first understand we have a need, and then secondly, seeing that that need is fulfilled in Jesus. That is saving faith. And so he's calling them to the source of their security in that, that there's there's salvation, the saving work is in Jesus and not in me. Romans 9, verse 16, it says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It is not on my will, but on the will of God. That's his intentions. The will just meaning the intentions. And then exertion, the work. The, 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 the process. It is not only His will or his, his intent, but it is His work that makes it possible. So He has laid that before us. He has invited us into that. So not only is that the source of our security in finding the saving work that He has offered to us, but then the second thing that He calls them to and He calls us to is to rediscover the significance that we have in salvation. That as we search for significance and we are in the slavery of the search for significance, that he says that significance is found in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Picking up in verse 8. He says, But what does it say? That the word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That the word of faith that we proclaim. The action of salvation, church, is near to us. And that it's provided to us. That God has not only given us the opportunity for salvation, but He's provided us 
with the very means at which obtaining it. He has given us the faith that we need to be saved. He has given us what we need to step into what he has called us to. He says the word of faith, he says the word is near you. He said it's near your mouth. It's near your heart. That it's paving the way. That he's given us what we need. That he's not a distant God. But that he's near to us. That that saving is near us. That faith is near us. And then he continues on and he says, because it is near you, because he's provided it, because he's made that way. In verse 9 he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10 says, for with the heart one believes and is justified or made right before God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That word confession there, it means to agree with. So when it says that we confess, when we confess with our mouths, and we confess that one confesses with our mouth, it says that we are making an utterance that we agree. And what are we saying that we agree with? That we agree with who Jesus Christ was, that he is the Son of God that he was God incarnate, that he was a deity, that he was God and that he was man and that he came and that he died on a cross, that he lived a sinless life and that he died on a cross for our sins, bearing that penalty, bear, bearing that weight for us. And then not only did he die, but he raised from the dead to show us that he defeated death on our behalf so that death would not have to be, uh, spiritual eternal death would not have to be our destination because he defeated, destroyed death and that we confess that he rose again and that he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And that in the end of our life, we come before the judgment of God. Jesus Christ will say, I've got this one. I've covered this one. I've paid his debt. I've paid her debt. I've covered it by my work because they put their faith in it. So finding that significance and to understand that belief and confession are connected. Belief and confession are connected for righteousness to be imputed to us and for that justification for us to be made right before a holy God happens through the, through the work of belief and confession that have happened together. Because you don't have belief without true confession. You don't have confession without true belief. And that more significance is found in that he says here in verse 11, he says this is given to everyone who believes. You know, all throughout the book of Romans, he constantly comes back to this idea between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. He said this is open. This is given to everybody. The Jews and the Greeks were quick to give credit to national or ethnic origin as a means for being saved. That they were, you had to be born into the right culture, born into the right family, born into the right circumstances. But Paul makes it clear that everyone has the opportunity to be in the significant saving faith that he's offered to them. That he has put this before everyone, that he has laid this before any who would receive it. And then not only do we find significance in that it's open invitation to all who would come, but then there's significance into those who are involved in it within it, kind of connecting us even to last week to preach this gospel. A lot of times this text is read in the, uh, towards the end here as speaking more to just pastors, but this preaching the gospel is a call that we all have. And that he says that there is a connection 
between the regeneration of a human being and the, evangel uh, and the, uh, and the evangelizing or the salvation of that individual. That as we speak the gospel to people, that we partake in the regeneration, the, 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 the Spirit of God uh, revealing Himself to that individual and bringing them to saving faith. We participate in that. We take part in that. In verse 17, he says, Faith comes by hearing, by hearing of the word of Christ. That through communicating the gospel, that we find significance that comes with a purpose that he has given to us, and that's through preaching the gospel. C.S. Lewis said, The glory of God, and as our only means of glorifying him, the salvation of human souls is the real business of life. Galatians 3.5 says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This faith He has given us is this faith that runs out of us and that we find significance in communicating this gospel and communicating this faith to other people. And so for us, how do we, how do we really begin to, as a believer, how do we begin to live in that, live in that saving work that's been done? Or even as an unbeliever, maybe, and I say unbeliever, remember, you can have a passion for God, a love for God, and still be technically an unbeliever who has not made a confession of faith towards Jesus Christ. And so how do we overcome uh, these things? What do we need to overcome to really begin to walk in it as a Christian or embrace it as someone who has not placed their faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, stopped uh, someone who is still depending on their own works to reach God, depending on their own abilities, on their own talents. There's two things I think we have to overcome as we begin to step into it and wrap up here this morning. He said the, the two things I think we have to over, I believe we have to overcome is intimidations and limitations. And the intimidation that I think keeps a lot of people either from walking in that saving faith or embracing that saving faith is their inability or their weakness and faults. What could God possibly do with me? And why would God possibly want me to be a part of his people? And my potential mess ups, you know, constantly keeping our failures before us. I think these intimidations, we're intimidated by our weakness, we're intimidated by our propensity to sin, and this keeps us from either as a Christian walking in that faith and living actively in that faith, or from even being on the outside of that true saving faith and truly embracing it, is the intimidation of our failure. And then the second thing being limitations. What will I miss out on? If I become a Christian, what will I give up? If I truly uh, give, give my life over to Christ, submitting to Him, putting my faith in His work and begin to walk in obedience to Him and who He's called me to be, what am I giving up? Will I really experience the life uh, that, that I'm living now? Will I experience everything? And in, in, in reality, you know, understanding, you know, what that is, it's based in reality, understanding of our vulnerability and the end of our life. And so what we're focused on is oh, I have to live now. I have to experience everything I can experience in this world now because this is all this world has. And so in our limited thinking, in our limitations, we're missing what God could do for us, either as a Christian by not living it out or someone on the outside who has not embraced saving faith. 
that we're afraid of what he's going to limit us and that we don't see that God has offered so much more to us than we could ever experience. And sometimes it does come, come becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Christ, receiving true faith begins with repentance, begins with, like we said, understanding the bad news, understanding where we fall short and where we have need. And I love how Paul writes to the church at Corinth when he says that, that there is a, a grief that is a good grief or a godly grief. 2 Corinthians 7, 10, through, uh, chapter 7, verse 10 through 11 says this, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. You know, there is, a, there is a, a pressing, there is a pressure that when the Spirit of God begins to reveal to us where we're fallen and broken, that can be painful, right? That can challenge us, that can kind of deconstruct who we are and what we believe about ourselves. And a lot of that being based on pride, our own ability to follow the, the law and to, to walk in our own righteousness or our own goodness. And so there is a grief that is a godly grief that leads us to repentance to understand that we have a need. And the difference between that type of grief that leads us to Christ and the type of grief that is just covered in shame because of our failures is this. I love how he lays this out. He says that it leads to a salvation without regrets, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what passion, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. He says that godly grief, uh, the grief that leads to repentance, when we experience that pressure, when we experience the, the trying fires of the Lord Jesus Christ to strip away all the impurities and to begin to mold us because our life, the saving work of Jesus Christ by faith in our life begins the process of God molding us into the image of Christ. And so we have to know that in God's molding us into the image of Christ, He will begin to mold us. There will be pressure. There will be things He strips away from us. There will be things He deconstructs from within us. But we have to know anything He deconstructs in our life, He is only deconstructing to reconstruct into something stronger, more permanent, more sustaining, and more satisfying. You know, I heard this this week that in a lot of ways, we as Christians, or even as human beings, we want the warmth of the womb and not the trauma of new birth. You know, there is, even, even in the, the medical sense, there is a lot of good that happens through the process of birth. You know, that does good for the baby as it, as it stimulates blood flow, as it pushes out fluid and all these other things that, 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 that happen in, in childbirth. You know, these same things happen that childbirth can be traumatic, that it can be intense. But what it does is it brings new life, a life that the womb could never provide, a life that the womb could not, the baby in the womb cannot experience until they have new life. This, and then they experience that first, first breath that God has given. And so for us, it's the same way that God is offering us new life. And that there is so much in this world that God will protect us from. You know, I don't want to say that God will take away from us so much or that God will keep us from, but it's what God will protect us from. But we are going to gain more than we'll ever feel like that we're missing. When we put our faith in Christ and begin to walk in that and see that He is just so good and that His goodness is good and that His goodness is, goodness is good and that God wants to give so much to us and He wants to provide this way for us and that if we could just see 
If we could just see, you know, we can live in the state that we're in. You know, the Bible constantly talks about how long and lavish and prosperous of a life that the wicked can live. You know, and for a lot of us, a lot of times, we, we can live just comfortable in where we are. You know, maybe you've heard this saying before. But uh, I heard it this week, and man, it, it just really, it really brought light to this even and challenged me in a lot of ways. It said this, it says that a broken clock is still right twice a day. A broken clock is still right twice a day. There's no purpose to it. There's no forward motion with it. But it's still right twice a day. In a lot of ways, we live our life in that way. I'm still doing some things right. You know, I'm still accomplishing some things. And where we fail to see ourselves truly is, is broken. It's broken. And what God wants to do with us in saving faith is He wants to see us fixed and have that security and have that significance. And that's what He calls us to because He protects us. He saves us. And church, whether we're in the wilderness, He is with us, or if we're in the wars, He's fighting for us. That's what He's offering us and that he wants to save us from slavery, the slavery of searching, the slavery of searching. And so for us as Christians, if we're not living in that, if we're not living in that, then what we're not doing is we're not deploying the resources that God has given for us. Romans 6, verse 11 through 12, and I'm finishing up. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So you also must consider that even if God sees you as dead to sin, you have to consider yourself that way. We have to start to live and walk in that way. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That we would not let sin reign in your mortal body, be the master of our life and make us obey its, easy, its passions, not obey its passions. That we would not be a slave to the search, but we would be a slave to the Savior. You know, the Bible uses this slavery master uh, illustration a lot in the Bible. But what we have to understand is the way that the Bible talks about slavery is the different than the way that we talk about slavery. Because when we talk about slavery, the only thing we can really relate it to is oppression, right? We relate it to oppression. We relate it to uh, mistreatment. We relate it to all those things. But when the Bible talked about slavery, it was in a much different light. It was a much different form than what we see. You know, when the Bible talks about it, the Bible would talk about slavery as almost a sort of welfare system where if someone was in need, where someone had a, 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 something tragic come up and they were in need, then a, a person of wealth or a person that had plenty could offer someone who had this need work. And that person could work for them, work with them. They would be their slave. They would be their master. But it would be a bond-servant relationship where this person is working off a debt that they have been given. And so when the Bible talks about the slavery illustration, that's the kind of slavery that it's talking about. This slavery of gain, where they're gaining something, but they owe because they owe something. And so what God is telling us when He calls us, when Paul tells in the book of Romans to be slaves of God and not slaves of sin, what He's calling us to is he's calling us to be have a master that is God in heaven that we are his bond servants and but to understand that the bond has been paid and that we have a master we have a master church that has given himself for us and that what he is calling us to is to give yourself to the master who gave himself for you 
And we see this slavery illustration all through the Bible. And the best one is in Exodus, as the, as the children of Israel are led out of slavery. And I just want to read these verses, and then we'll be done this morning. Exodus 13.3 says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. God wants to bring us out of the slavery of our sin, out of our searching for significance and security and everything else but Him. And it's by His hand. It's by being obedient. It's by being bond servants to Christ, by putting our faith in Him and walking in that confidence that we can live in this way in Exodus 13.8. He says, You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Their faith was in following Moses. Their faith was in stepping on the dry land, crossing the Red Sea. Their faith is depending on God and being able to make that claim that is because of what the Lord did for me. I just want us to be able to live. As a Christian, I want us to be able to live in that confidence. I'm saved because of what the Lord did for me. And then as maybe someone here this morning that hasn't truly put your faith in the work of Jesus and still depending on the work of yourself. That God is calling you to that. That God is saying that I have done the work. Just receive it. Just receive it. So I just want us to bow our heads and pray this morning. And we'll wrap up. And As you consider, I pray that you consider yourself in your own state. Maybe you're a believer here this morning and you're not truly walking in the confidence of that statement that, that, that the Lord has done this for me, that He led me out of slavery, that I would remember what He's done and know that it's because of Him and not what I've done. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're still depending on your own work to get close to God. You're still seeking your own righteousness and not the righteousness of God. You're trying to establish yourself. And whether it's based out of fear, whether it's based out of pride, just allow yourself to be challenged this morning. The Bible says if we would believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth, agreeing with confession, agreeing with what has been said about Christ, what He has done, and who we are in Him, the Bible says just believe. Just acknowledge Him. Believe in Him. Put your faith in Him. Let go of your own work and rest in His. Father God, I thank You for this morning. God, I thank You for Your Word. God, I thank You for the work that You've done. God, I thank You for, for, for the merit God, for the mercy and grace that you've provided for us in ways that we could not provide for ourselves. God, I pray this morning that as Christians, if we've put our faith in you, God, but we're not living in the confidence and power of that work, God, I pray that we would begin to step in that. God, I would pray that we would begin to consider what it is you've done and be able to rest in what you've done and live in what you've done. God, I pray this morning that we would not be trying to live in our own righteousness, but God, live in your righteousness. Walk in that way. Follow that way. God, I pray for anyone here this morning that has not truly put their faith in your work, believed and confessed truly in who you are and what you've done. God, I pray they do that this morning. 
God, and I pray that we would be, be able to celebrate that together through public confession in response to what's been done privately. God, to live in that confidence, to walk in that confidence, God, that we, 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 we lost our security and significance. God, you've offered us a way to regain it, and that's through the saving faith through Jesus Christ. God, so I pray for our church. God, I pray that you continue to use us. God, I pray, I pray that you challenge every individual here this morning.